This is the Mahabharata Podcast, Episode 54, The March on Kurukshetra. Last time, Krishna finished his mission to Hastinapur. He had utterly failed in averting the war, but he still had some tricks up his sleeve. His meeting with Karna was doubly tricky, in that he was able to divide Karna's loyalties, plus, by allowing Sanjay to know what took place, he spread uncertainty among the Kurus. In the course of these conversations, Karna reveals himself as the real tragic hero of the story. With his noble qualities of loyal honesty and generosity, he could have easily taken Yudhishthira's place as the hero of the story. But by having been cast out of the caste system and picked up by Duryodhana, these same good qualities were perverted. The best he could hope for was to die nobly as the best of the bad guys. The most direct result of Krishna's meddling was that Kunti managed to extract a promise that he would not even try to kill four of her five sons. I have trouble judging just how much of a threat Karna poses to his enemies. It would appear that Karna is just a paper tiger, full of bluster, but not a serious threat. By the way the advisors talk, you would think that the war will be just a formality. If you compare Arjun to Karna, it seems like this is no contest. Arjun has numerous friends among the gods, and is reincarnation of India's greatest warrior. He has heaps of magical weapons, some of which are quite capable of destroying the physical universe. Karna's assets are almost laughable by comparison. Arjun was trained by the best of the mortals, Drona and Kripa, and then had five years among the gods for advanced studies. Karna, on the other hand, was forced to trick Parasurama to get a brief training and was then cursed for his efforts. His paltry pair of magical weapons were cursed and circumscribed and were purchased at great personal cost. Somehow, despite this obvious disparity and the inevitability of victory, Arjun will have a difficult time of dealing with this pusillanimous half-brother on the battlefield. Following Krishna's interview with Karna, he continued on toward Upaplavya, where he met with the Pandavas and told them everything we've gone over in the last few episodes. It appears that more went on during the visit than we've been told so far, because when Yudhishthira pressed Krishna for more details, he related a speech that Bhishma made regarding the legitimacy of the Pandavas' cause. Basically, Bhishma provided a brief genealogy to help untangle these rivaling claims. To sum up, he began with his father Shantanu, who had only a single son and heir, Bhishma. Bhishma reminds us that his father worried about having just one son, and he pined for some backup heirs. Bhishma got wind of his father's concern, and he found his father a new wife, while also making the famous oath to never marry or have children or become king. This young bride, the fragrant Satyavati, gave birth to Vichitravirya. Bhishma famously fought off all the kings of India to fetch wives for his young brother, but the boy proved to be a weakling. Although he spent all his time frolicking with his two wives, while Bhishma ruled the kingdom, he never managed to produce an heir. Bhishma's young brother, Vichitravirya, died of exhaustion, childless. Bhishma described the situation as desperate. Without a king, the rain seized and the people were thrown into poverty. They begged him to forsake his oath and take up the throne, but Bhishma refused. Instead, he arranged for Satyavati's sadhu first son, Vyasa, to sleep with Vichitravirya's nubile princesses. Blind Dhritarashtra, heroic Pandu, and illegitimate Vidur were the products of this union. Bhishma skipped the murky details of Pandu's impotency and retirement and cut straight to the point. Dhritarashtra was not made king because he was blind. Thus, Pandu was the legitimate king, and so his sons are the legitimate heirs. Case closed. He concluded that the least they could do was give Pandu's sons half the kingdom. 
Krishna next reported Drona's arguments. Drona agreed with Bhishma, but he had a more nuanced justification. He pointed back to the halcyon days when Pandu had retired from the throne and had placed Dhritarashtra there in his stead. He said Pandu pacified the foreign lands while Bhishma defended the kingdom. Vidor managed the economy and Dhritarashtra enforced justice. Drona pleaded, Why can't you all get along like your uncles once did? Let your cousins have half the kingdom and you will both prosper. The next to speak was Vidor. He didn't speak long. He just expressed his frustration that no one ever listened to his advice and his disbelief that even at this late stage, Bhishma still intended to fight for Duryodhana. Even Gandhari joined in, scolding her son for refusing the rightful succession of the Kuru line. Finally, Duryodhana's own father weighed in. He followed Bhishma's genealogical method, but he found the deeper patterns in the history of their family. Dhritarashtra went way, way back to the first king, Soma Prajapati. The sixth in his line was Yayati, son of Nausha. For more details, see episode 11, The Loves of King Yayati. The main lesson of that story, according to the king, was that the eldest brothers were passed over in favor of the youngest son, Puru. This was done because the elder sons had been rebellious, while Puru was the more fitting king. Going down the line to Dhritarashtra's grandfather, Shantanu was in fact his father's third son. Old King Pratipa had three sons, Devapi, Balika, and Shantanu. Devapi was about to be consecrated king, but the people discovered that he had leprosy, and they refused to allow the coronation. As a result of this defect, Devapi left for the forest for an ascetic life. Palika, for whatever reason, had already left the country to be with his wife's family, leaving the youngest son Shantanu to be king and to pass on the royal line. Dhritarashtra concluded by denying his own kingship, saying, Likewise, I myself was barred from the kingship, and my younger brother became king. When Pandu died, the kingdom became his son's. So, if I could not inherit the realm, how could my son? This seems a little disingenuous to me considering that old Dhritarashtra was none too anxious to hand over the throne back when the boys came of age. Krishna concluded his account of the negotiations, saying that Duryodhana had heard all of these arguments, but shrugged them all off, and then he called his allies to arms. Helplessly, Bhishma was made commander of the eleven armies, and the great force made ready to march on Kurukshetra. Krishna explained that he had done everything permissible in such a negotiation. He had tried conciliation, then he frightened them with the strength of the allies. When that failed, he showed them miracles. He said, I threatened them, denigrated Duryodhana, insulted Karna and Shakuni, and tried to weaken their allies. I even offered them peace in exchange for just five villages, yet they rejected even that. Now I see no other course but war. The kings now march to Kurukshetra to their doom. Yudhishthira agreed and formally addressed his brothers telling them to summon their allies and make ready to march. He announced the names of their seven commanding generals, King Drupad, King Virata, Drupad's son, Dristadyumna, his transsexual son, Sikandi, Krishna's buddy, Satyaki, Chekitana of Chedi, and Bhimasena. From their number, Krishna recommended that Drupad be made supreme allied commander. Of course, for Yudhishthira, Krishna's wish was as good as a command, so Drupad was appointed the marshal of the Pandava's forces. When Drupad had been duly installed, the conches were blown, the men cheered, and the seven vast armies marched out for Kurukshetra. 
The Pandavas and their seven generals led in the vanguard, while their troops, elephants, and cavalry followed in procession. Behind them came the usual hangers-on, including merchants, treasure wagons, war wagons, surgeons, washers, and whores. As for dear Draupadi, she stayed at Upaplavia with the rest of the women folk, with slave girls as her servants. It says that the army arrived at Kurukshetra and set up camp there. Yudhishthira located a site with level terrain, plentiful grass and firewood, near the holy river Hiranvati. As they set up camp and prepared for battle, news flowed in of the Kaurava's march on Kurukshetra. As the reality of what lay ahead began to sink in, Yudhishthira became distraught. Perhaps looking for a way out, he asked Krishna, Remind me again why we are doing this. What exactly did they tell you at the negotiations? Krishna was a little annoyed at this. He said, I already told you everything that was said and done. Your cousin is wicked, stubborn, and headed for destruction. The time for endless conversations and storytelling is over. Now it is time to fight. Yudhishthira was still not satisfied. He said, You know, I bust my ass trying to prevent this war. We put up with 14 years of poverty and humiliation for the sake of peace. We argued, fought, and wept as we searched for a peaceful solution, and all for nothing since we are nevertheless facing war. Now we are lined up against our own relations and elders. Remind me again, how is it okay for us to try to kill members of our own family? This time, Arjun spoke for his friend. He said, Krishna already explained this, and you heard what Vidor and your mother had to say about it. You know that they would never advise against your dharma, and at this point, it would be wrong not to fight. Krishna agreed, and the Dharmaraja's mind was pacified. He and his brothers slept easily that night. The next morning, the Karava army rolled into Kurukshetra, all eleven armies. They set up their camp a good distance from their opponents, and Duryodhana called a meeting. The Karava observed that each army had a commander, but it would be unmanageable without a marshal to lead all eleven armies. This person would have to be respected by all the allies, and so Bhishma was the obvious choice. Furthermore, as far as Duryodhana was concerned, in warfare Bhishma was unrivaled in the whole world. He said, With Bhishma at our helm, we shall be invincible even against the gods. Bhishma agreed, but he felt the need to qualify that assessment somewhat. He said, It is as you say, Karavya, but you know that the Pandavas are as dear to me as yourself. But nonetheless, I must fight on your side as I have sworn to do. I have not met my match in warfare, except, of course, Dhananjaya, the left-handed son of Kunti. On the other hand, I don't think you would ever fight against me. Therefore, I shall exterminate your enemies unless they manage to kill me in battle. I have only one condition before I become your commander. Either Karna will fight, or I will, but I will not share the field with that Sutputra. Karna had no problem with that. He had already sworn to that effect anyway so he readily agreed to wait until Bhishma is dead on the field of battle before taking up arms. With that settled, Duryodhana consecrated and anointed his uncle as supreme commander. The assembled soldiers roared their approval to the blare of conches and kettle drums. But even this cacophony was soon overpowered by the cries of wild animals, thunder in the cloudless sky, a gale force wind, and finally a bloody rain. While all these evil omens were going on at the Karva camp, the Pandavas retreated to a couple of special visitors. The first of these was Balram. He had already declined to take sides in the war and was on his way to pilgrimage sites. Apparently, he just dropped in to remind us that he wasn't going to fight. 
the second visitor was equally curious. It was none other than Krishna's aggrieved brother-in-law, Rukmin. This guy's backstory isn't even in this version of the epic, but luckily we got to hear it when we covered Krishna's exploits from the Bhagavata Purana. If you recall, Rukmin's sister, Rukmini, had been promised to Sishupal of Chedi, but she had chosen Krishna despite her family's wishes. Krishna got wind of this and drove off with her in his chariot. Rukmin angrily chased after this pair, swearing never to return home without first avenging this slight. He failed, of course, and Krishna ended up stripping him naked and tying him to a tree. Since then, Rukmin had taken up an itinerant lifestyle and had formed a powerful band of warriors. He eventually founded a new city called Bhojakata. He must have become quite a warrior because he had managed to acquire the third best bow in India, after Arjun's Gandava bow and Krishna's Saranga bow. Rukmin's bow was called Vijaya. Surprisingly, Rukmin did not come to pick a fight with his old enemy. Instead, he proudly sauntered in and offered to be their hero and savior. He generously offered to hold Arjun's hand if he got afraid, and promised to personally finish up this business and wipe out the enemy. This was all too much for Arjun. He had to remind them of his own great feats, and finally sent this guy packing. The battlefield was too small for three super warriors like Arjun and Krishna. Unfazed, Rukmin then ambled over to the opposing camp. There he offered his services. He must have come off as too arrogant even for the Karavas, because we are only told that they declined his services as well. Our narrator then makes it clear why he took this moment to mention both Balram and Rukmin. He tells us that these were the only two warriors in all of India who did not take part in the coming battle. At this point, the whole frame of the story makes an important shift. For most of this book, the descriptions are quoted from what Vyasa's disciple Vaisampayana is telling King Janamajaya. If you go back to the very beginning of this podcast, you'll recall that the whole epic is told in terms of a conversation between Vyasa's disciple and Arjun's great-grandson Janamajaya, long after the Great War had ended. Now, what Vaisampayana says is that King Dhritarashtra asked Sanjay to tell him everything that happened once the two armies arrived at Kurukshetra. Sanjay then proceeds to narrate for most of the rest of the war. So everything that takes place from here on is presented as what Sanjay reported to Dhritarashtra and Dhritarashtra's questions and reactions to these events. Like what happened last episode, when Sanjay reported the private conversation between Krishna and Karna, once again the charioteer displays an amazing omniscience regarding the far-off war. I guess it was from the awful Peter Brook movie in the TV series that I got the impression that Krishna somehow granted that power to Sanjay before he returned to Upaplavya. But in the critical edition, at least so far, Sanjay's clairvoyance simply goes unexplained. Dhritarashtra said to Sanjay, Come, my friend, tell me everything that happened at the camps of the Kuru and Pandava armies. Leave nothing out. I think fate reigns supreme, and our efforts count for nothing. I know very well how horrible this war shall be, but I could not control my deceitful son. I have always been good at discriminating good from evil, but somehow when it comes to my son, my mind is warped. So whatever will be, will be. After all, death in battle is the honored dharma of all Kshatriyas. Sanjay replied, You make a good point, sir, but you can't blame your boy for all of this. I'll tell you all you want to hear, 
But you know as well as I do that when your nephews were cheated at dice, it was out of respect for you that they endured all those years of hardship. You could have redeemed them at any time, but you did nothing. Sanjay continued, So hear now, in full, of the slaughter of men and elephants and horses, of the fall of kings in battle. And while you hear, O king, of the great war that brought on the destruction of the world, stay calm, do not be sad. For man is not the cause of his good and evil acts. He is helplessly manipulated like a puppet. Some destinies are foreordained, others are the victim of chance, while others are living the karma of their past lives. And it is the combination of these three that is tearing the world asunder. That's all for now. Next time, Bhishma will give us a list of the main participants in the coming war, and will remind us who all these guys are. Following that, we'll finish up Book 5 with the fascinating story of Amba and Sikandin. Thanks for listening.